Hi everyone, my name is Dr. Greg Wells and this is my podcast. I'm a scientist, a physiologist, an author, and I love exploring how to live a high performance life. In my books, my presentations, and this podcast, I am doing my best to translate hard science and powerful experiences into actionable, effective life performance strategies. Using the latest research on the brain and the body, this podcast will show you simple but transformative strategies that boost mental and physical health, advance careers, and upgrade lives. I am committed to changing one life at a time for the better. I want to focus on health, happiness, and performance, and I call my mission the billion-person problem. And I don't kid myself that I'm going to reach a billion people, but that's the dream and the space where my passion, my expertise, and my practices all come together. My passion is to help people live healthier and more impactful lives. My expertise lies in the research that I both try to conduct and engage in for a living, and my practice is devoted to providing evidence-based insights and strategies that make it possible to achieve personal and professional success, and that is what this podcast is all about. I hope that you love the show and it makes a big difference in your life. Let me know what you think on Twitter at Dr. Greg Wells. And without any further delays, let's dive into this episode of the Dr. Greg Wells podcast. Hello, everyone. Thanks for joining me on this episode of the Dr. Greg Wells podcast. It's great to be with you. And today we interview Dr. Bryn Weingard. Dr. Bryn is an award-winning professor, speaker, and brain expert. Dr. Bryn completed her formal education in neuroscience, psychology, marketing, and strategy. Her undergrad was a BSc, then she went on to earn an MBA and ultimately a PhD. And she has coupled that with over a decade in corporate marketing, working for organizations such as Pfizer, Nestle, and Johnson & Johnson while Professor Weingard retains positions as faculty at the Schulich School of Business, the DeGroote School of Business, and the University of Guelph, she's now dedicated herself to helping others through speaking about building better brains to groups, organizations, and companies. All of this work stems from her research, which ultimately combines business and brain sciences. I am really excited to have Dr. Bryn on the show I'm just psyched about this interview because I'm really interested lately in how we can use all of the great information about positive psychology, but couple that with cutting edge neuroscience to ultimately improve mental health and mental performance. And Dr. Bryn, certainly a world-class expert in that field. So without any further delays, let's dive right into this. Enjoy my interview with Dr. Bryn Weingard. All right, Dr. Bryn, thanks for joining us. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me, Dr. Greg. Happy to be here. So right before I clicked record, we were talking about our careers and you were describing to me how you didn't audit on what you love versus what you don't love. And you've come up with the things that you do, which is speaking and teaching. But how did you land there? Let's go over that again, because I thought it was awesome. Yeah, thanks. Well, so much like yourself, I was a full-time professor who, you know, we have teaching research service to do. I actually really enjoyed the teaching the most. Secondarily, I would say that I liked the service, was really working with the students, giving back to the student body, even working collegially with my counterparts, collaborating internal at the institution. But the part that was sort of burning me out, it was a slog in the morning. 
it wasn't burning up, you know, a fire in my belly that I felt like I had to release it. And I really wasn't therefore doing the best quality of the research. And so that's really what I decided had to go. And so I'm not a classic or conventional academic in that sense, because at least for the time being, have let that part of my whole platform sort of rest. And much like we were discussing earlier, that in the interest of sort of reprioritizing what it is that I work on and therefore have the most impact doing. Interesting. And so tell me a little bit about the work that you do. What is your focus right now? What is it that you're spending your days engaging with at the moment? I focused on business and brain science and merging the two. In the olden days, that used to be called things like neural management, neural leadership, neural marketing, those kind of things. And I still would consider them to be relevant, though I would say it's a lot broader than that. I spend my days, much like yourself, I run a business. So there's a lot of delivering that has to happen. There's a lot of, I would say, organizing and chasing and marketing and some of the administration that goes into running a business. But then if you're really thinking about, well, what is like the knowledge work that I'm doing is taking a lot of disparate sciences, reading very broad, especially this time of year, Greg, it's my time to sort of retrench myself in the literatures and some of the newest science. Looking at other sciences you wouldn't necessarily think are relevant and then bringing them back to my sort of domain or milieu, mixing them up in my head and then either reproducing them in the form of video or blog content. I'm attempting right now to write a popular press book. So putting it in terms that people very much like yourself, I think we have a lot in common, putting it in terms that real people, real business people can use. Interesting. And so what's capturing your attention right now as you're doing this deep dive into the literature and thinking as you've sort of backed away from things? It's the summer. A lot of people do that. I'm doing that this month as well. What's the latest thinking that you're exploring? Two things I really have come into some of the work of people like Sean Akor. There are others out there, but it's effectively sort of the science of happiness. So the brain science behind what makes us happy, why we are happy, why happiness on the aggregate seems to be decreasing. People ask me that a lot. And of course, a lot of the question, especially after, let's say, people will come up and say, you know, I used to be a lot happier. I want to be happier. And I understand more isn't going to help me. And I understand that happiness is self-work and all of that. How do I become happier? And so I started looking into it basically because because it was a question. And another place I think that really has tweaked my interest lately is this concept of self-care being health care and the idea that you're really the only person that a lot of what goes wrong, dis-ease, disease, ill health, really stems often from psychosomatic disorders and psychosomatic place. And therefore, what are the early indicators of that mental health, of that place in your brain that allows you to manage and be nimble and flexible around stress, but not let it overcome you and overtake you, and how we can sort of preserve that and ensure it. And so sort of looking into mindfulness literatures and meditation literatures, but not stopping there, sort of saying, if meditation is purposeful as a means to the end, what's the end? And of course, the end is really a mindset and a brain space that allows you psychosomatic health and happiness and the ability to think of how to be more productive and how to operate at one's peak self and maintain that, especially in light of, you hear this a lot from our youth, and this is sort of where some of the questions stem from, but in light of just some of the terror in the world and sort of this, I think it's culminating in the ether. It's sort of in Jungian collective conscience or something that is just this, there's terrorists and there's a lot of horrific things happening. And 
we're not 8 billion, we're almost 9 billion and poverty is at an all time high and the difference between rich and poor. And so people are having a harder and harder time all the time. Technology is increasing and in how advanced it becomes. And that's overwhelming for many people. And so I think there's sort of increasingly you see people struggle to be happy in and of themselves and find sort of a calm and peaceful place in their own brain space and their own mindset. That's really interesting. So let's take a step back to what you began with, because I've also been fascinated by happiness lately. So first of all, like what is happiness and what can people do you think do to build more happiness into their lives? If that's something that they should, maybe that's not even the end that we should be looking for. And it's probably not, but I'd love to know a little bit more about what your thoughts on what is happiness and how can we maybe increase that in our lives? Yeah, it's such a good question. I mean, it is relative to some degree. I think a cab driver on my way to a talk out from the airport in Chicago asked me this last week. And in a hurry, I found in very simple terms, I had to figure out how to answer his question. And I said, you know, sir, really, the answer there is stopping comparing yourself. Hmm. contentedness in oneself. It's when you look around and see, you know, and I'm a marketer by background. And I always joke that as a marketer, our job is to tear people down the Maslow's hierarchy, right? You're not thin enough. You're not pretty enough. You're not rich enough. You don't have a good enough education. You don't have a big enough house. Your car isn't nice enough, et cetera, on and on the list goes. And what we know is that people who have less of a delta between their aspirational self and their actual self or their ideal self and their actual self are happier. And so in a very sort of like one line soundbite would be to stop comparing yourself to others, that contentedness is really about the secret to your happiness is to feel as though what you have is enough and who you are is enough. I think you asked another question about that when it comes to sort of, is it the end goal? I don't know that it is. I think I often talk about the fact that emotions are functional. You're supposed to have emotions. They are supposed to feel uncomfortable. And the reason for that, as an example, biological or evolutionary perspective, is that it motivates action and behavior. And so if, as an example, you're feeling something, I often say to people and to clients and to audiences, don't try to repress that or deny that. Feeling something, and especially that intuitive self that pops up and says, hey, this doesn't feel quite right, don't ignore it. Because it's there to remind you something that isn't maybe in your best interest or to motivate you toward action? And I think that is a good question. Should we feel happy all the time? No, I don't think we should. But I also think there's a very happy, it's an inverted U curve, right? There's never feeling happy is an absolute recipe for depression and despair and hopelessness. And always feeling happy is a recipe for naivete and lack of progress. So there's this sort of happy medium, happy middle space there that comes from, I think, a lack of self-comparison or less self-comparison and also healthy acknowledgement that emotion and discomfort and unhappiness are functional in moderation. Yeah, I couldn't agree with you more that on a few things, I love the idea of radical self-acceptance when you're not stop comparing yourself to other people. That's crucial. It's almost like you have to stop comparing yourself to yourself too. Or if you do, stop comparing yourself to what you think you should be and rather just pay attention to where you are maybe glance back and see where you've been and how far that you've come. And that is a way of dealing with this gap between what we feel and maybe what we should feel. And I've found that that's been really helpful for people and some aspects of that for things that I've been working on as well. So I love the fact that you've latched onto that and also that you're thinking about 
the fact that it's okay not to be happy. Like, sure, it's great to be happy. That's phenomenal. But you shouldn't expect to be happy all the time. It's okay to feel the spectrum of what humans are capable of feeling. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I think, I mean, a couple of things there. One is that social psychologists have long sort of known that social comparison to others, both upward social comparison and downward social comparison, are harmful, right? If you're looking to others who have done way better than you, then you're absolutely going to feel this huge delta in terms of their state and your state, and you're going to feel like you're not good enough, you haven't achieved enough. Again, if you're looking downward to others, then you have this inflated sense of how much you've accomplished and how great you are, and that's also not a functional headspace. Then to your point, yeah, looking back in your own history and saying, look how far I've come, I think absolutely can be very helpful. I think there is a healthy kind of difference between who you want to be and where you want to head and where you are right today. Some of that in moderation, again, can help you get out of bed in the morning and motivate you forward and give you a good mind's eye picture of who you want to be and what you want to achieve. But I think as that delta grows to greater and greater lengths, it becomes increasingly toxic. And to your point, you know, then it's hard to climb out of what might otherwise be a healthy and motivating, helpful, hopeful emotion into one that is depressing and despairing and hopeless. And yeah, it's an interesting conundrum. Well, it's fun to explore this because I think the end, the solution will come from these types of discussions. And a little while ago, you also talked about fear and terror. And I'd love to get your perspective on that, both from a psychological perspective. What is fear? Why does it happen? Why is it good for us? Why is it important? But then also, how do we deal with it? And how do we minimize its negative effects upon our lives? Because it can be both good from a survival perspective. Mm-hmm. You know, when you hear the branch break in the woods, it's good to look in that direction and find out what it is, maybe run away. Yeah. How do we use it in a positive way or make sure that it's not interfering in us moving forwards? Well, I think you sort of answered it. There are benefits to, you know, feeling fearful and having a sort of healthy level of imagination about what can go wrong, could go wrong, might go wrong. You know, what is out there that is threatening us? Because the opposite is naivete and that's not going to be helpful to us. There are three things basically that you can do with fear. And that's first is, of course, to express it. And that's sometimes fine. It's not always useful. You can repress it and say, hey, it's deny that it's happening to you. Say, you know, just man up. I hear that a lot. Or, you know, don't be a pussy. Like you got to just, and people do this self-talk that they say to them. I don't hear this verbalized often other than the verbalizations people say they tell themselves, right? Oh, I just have to man up. I just shouldn't be such a pussy anymore. I've really got to be my strongest self. But unfortunately, that's not necessarily going to work. One of the things that I say is that Your third option is to transform that emotion. And so if what you're feeling is fear, transforming it is really to either relabel it or to use it other ways. So you might relabel it not as fear, but as healthy self-reflection or healthy imagination about what could happen. And then that allows you to sort of identify the emotion objectively. Or you might say, listen, I'm going to normalize this emotion. I'm going to say that fear is a very healthy way of feeling right now and that I should feel fearful or I should feel stressed and anxious and that if we normalize it what we are attempting to do sometimes you know almost picture me like pulling an emotion out of my chest or out of my brain but it allows us to objectify the emotion so that instead of it controlling us we control it and so we take it back on our terms and understand why we're feeling that way how it is that our subconscious might have developed that sense whether or not it is, you know, a recurrent sense of fear, 
a novel sense of fear? So is this a new source or sense of fear? And really trying to figure out or pinpoint what in our environment, our context, our circumstance is causing that fear. And then I think that allows you to rationalize it, objectify it in such a way that you take control over it again so that you can do what we basically, you and I probably are telling a lot of people to do, which is take those emotions and have them be functional toward proactive performance and action and behavior, as opposed to letting them control us and dumb us down and have them be toxic toward any productivity and in many cases make us unable to act and create anxiety, despair, depression, other dopamine feedback cycle loops of further fear. And that can happen too, right? When people are just spending too long circulating glucocosteroids and cortisol and really ending up in adrenal fatigue and failure and burnout, those are the watchouts. So I think there are those three things you can really do with that. And that's what the benefit is in feeling those emotions. Interesting. So when you were talking about that, in my mind, I was picturing being scared for some reason. I pictured like, well, how would I feel if I had a cancer diagnosis? And obviously I'd be fearful. And that's maybe because I spend a little bit of time doing research on cancer. So it's always in the back of my mind. So I would probably be fearful, but I would want to move that into action. So when you were describing deconstructing it so that you move forwards rather than be paralyzed, that was fascinating. So it's almost like executing a mental process so that you are motivated, not paralyzed. And I know that you're spoken about motivation, so I love your insights. And am I on the right track with that? Does that make sense? Again, sort of like if a cab driver asked me that same question, the nugget or the soundbite that I often give people is to get mad, not sad. And that's because anger instead of fear, right? Sad being sort of a fear emotion, a hopeless space in your mind, whereas anger is motivating toward action. And so almost like those approach versus withdrawal emotions, the idea that if you can transform, sometimes, I don't know if you've heard it, Greg, and I'm sure some of your audience has around the fear of public speaking. They say, take your nervous energy and put it into your performance, make it performative energy. It's sort of a similar adage. It's sort of a similar concept where you say, listen, instead of getting sad and ruminating and admiring yourself in these helpless, hopeless, despairing emotions, get mad get functional toward it. Say, what can I do to make things different? What actions can I take? What behaviors need to be different? Where can I find solution? And I think that is a much more motivated space and therefore a lot more helpful to you. Does action lead to motivation or does motivation lead to action? (laughs) It's a good question. They're mutually reinforcing often. And so what you'll often see is When you get, as an example, a reinforcement from an action that the effect you were hoping for happened, you feel more motivated in successive steps. And so there's all kinds of great research out there that shows that, you know, when people get started, this is called the Zagarnik effect as an example, but I sometimes say it's sort of like the Nike tagline, just do it. If you're having a really hard time, you're procrastinating, you don't know where to start with something, just do it. Just start. Start anywhere. Because what we know is that a little bit of progress will motivate further action. And that, again, according to dopamine feedback loops, I always say my adage is do it with dopamine. But the idea is is that these little squirts of dopamine, little surges are going to help you motivate you up the next step. And it's that step might not be very high. It might be a couple inches, but then the next step and the next step and so on. And those have a way of becoming mutually reinforcing and self-fulfilling. And then next thing you know, you're able to leap 
multiple steps at a time and you're really making huge leaps and bounds in terms of your progress. But the real critical thing is to start anywhere. You'll laugh. I have a funny story. I have a personal trainer friend who told me this and he had people obviously like you would know in your exercise programs that do not want to exercise. And so what he said, and he didn't know he was using the Zagarnik effect, but basically he said, listen, I don't care if you go for a walk, for a run, for one mile, for two miles, for 17 steps. Here's, I don't care. Don't worry about that. What I want you to do is promise me this. Every day, what you would do is you'll put on your running shoes, you'll put on your workout gear, you'll put on your hair up, you'll put your headband on, and you'll put in your earbuds, and you will walk out your front door, down your front steps, and stand in your driveway. <laughs> that's great. Isn't it good? Yeah. And so he doesn't realize that that's the just start, right? That's the just do it. Nike's just do it. It's just starting anywhere. And Zagarnik was the theorist who showed that if you do that, you get enough surge of dopamine associated with, well, he didn't actually talk about dopamine. You get enough of the satisfaction of having started something that you're likely to take the first step. And then, you know, I often say this on stage, but we all know that a journey of a thousand miles starts with a single step. And so the idea is, is that you give yourself just an inch and you will ultimately take up a mile. You'll be able to get a lot more done. But to your point, and I love it, and I know it was rhetorical, but action leads to motivation and motivation leads to action. And those things, they're not just mutually reinforcing, but they are actually, they will grow exponentially as you continue to reinforce this, which of course, as you and I both know, is the etiology often for addiction, right? You do a little bit, you like what you get, you do a little bit more of a bit, you like what you get, you keep going on and on and on, and the cycle goes. And so that is the power of habit and the power of good habits, right? Is almost like creating functional addictions. Oh, so many questions. I would love to get your thoughts on, you were describing the dopamine feedback loop and how it can be positive if you're doing things that make you better. And a while ago, you mentioned addiction. And a while ago, we also mentioned technology. So I want to try to pull all of that together and just get your thoughts on the dopamine feedback loop, positive and negative, how it can be great for us, or it can be negative for us. And your thoughts on, first of all, what it is and how we can avoid it being a bad thing and leverage it to be a good thing. Yeah. So, I mean, very quickly, what it is, is... The idea that we, our brains are very neuroplastic. Most of our brains, all there are synapses that run on dopamine. Dopamine is used to be considered like the pleasure neurochemical, but now we know is the action neurochemical. And that came out of research with actually soldiers from Afghanistan who had PTSD, who would experience when they would hear bombs go off, they would experience a surge in dopamine. Now, historically, we'd seen surges in dopamine as an example in drug addicts who were craving their next hit. When they would go to get that hit, when they would be motivated to act toward getting the drug of choice, we would also see dopamine surges as a result of having injected heroin, as an example. But it's long been discredited now as that, that hedonism, pleasure chemical, and much more in the way of an action hormone that basically is the brain's own reward for having done something that it wanted to do is the most sort of auto, you know, <laughs> that's why it becomes a self-feedback loop. The other thing is, is that the brain being neuroplastic is constantly looking to, if you do it once and you receive a positive response internally even, your brain will want to do it again. It will lay down neurons for wanting to do it again. And I think to your point, the question is, well, almost like a computer, that system operates the same every time it operates, but the choice is ours as to what we allow it to operate on. So if you allow that to operate on 
cigarettes as an example, well, then you will get addicted to cigarettes. If every time you have one, you get a little bit of surge of nicotine, you enjoy the feeling, you enjoy it, so on and so on, you'll want more and more and more. And then there are habituation effects, they're called, that lead to needing greater and greater amounts of them. So you go from smoking three cigarettes a day to 30, et cetera. But that is also the nature of progress. And so when you choose a habit that is functional, not dysfunctional like smoking, but is functional like working out or you know going out into the driveway with all of your running gear on and taking that single step, day over day, week over week, you start to build neural networks that themselves are, certainly are dopaminergic and will then create this motivation toward action, toward habit. And that's really how you can create progress and you will habituate to that activity. And so we always say, and I know you say this probably in your gyms and in your laboratories, but you know, no pain, no gain from the perspective that you have to constantly be challenging yourself in order to continue to grow those networks and to lay down those neurons and to see the progress that you're looking to see. So there's always going to be a little bit of discomfort in it. But the idea is that work that is a little bit uncomfortable, but is allowing you in within a realm you enjoy some amount of progress is in fact what Csikszentmihalyi, the theorist who talked about cognitive flow and flow states, flow states being the ideal state under which to work and to get things done. Basically, Csikszentmihalyi said that most productivity and the height of productivity, the most productive you will be, will be in a state of flow. So if we want to be more productive, then we want to facilitate a state of flow. Facilitating a state of flow is about being in a dopaminergic feedback loop in neural networks that are a, a thing we want to be productive at that is a little bit uncomfortable still. And so we're constantly sort of pushing ourselves. And so that's really dysfunction and function are all relative, but they're just about the mechanism works the same way. It's really your choice to use it in a functional versus non-functional way. You either use it on pretend it's exercise every day or cigarettes, and that's your choice. Sometimes I'm out working out or riding my bike and everything's going great. And in my mind, I'm like, oh, this is wonderful. This is a flow state, which obviously means I've dropped out of flow because I'm thinking, but <laughs> I'll zip back and forth and like, oh my, this is just fantastic. I'm, this is the most incredible thing ever. Actually, I was out on my paddleboard today and that was the best. It was so cool. And I was these waves I was going over and it was just awesome. And I was this incredible flow state and I was loving it and then flipping yeah. in and out of awareness about it. And then there's been other times where I've been out there and suffering massively. And I'm like, oh, great. The hydrogen ions in my muscles are blocking the calcium links, like and on and on and on. And so I've set myself up to overthink situations. I'm trying not to do that as much these days. But have you found yourself in a moment when you detected that your dopamine feedback loops were operating negatively. Can you tell me about that and how you got out of it? And then another different time, perhaps when they were operating and you were firing on all cylinders and what that was like, just like with you, with your expertise to tell us about your perceptions or deconstruction of things that have happened to you where it was working great and where it was working not so well. Yeah. I mean, uh, you, if know, you can be so vulnerable and I would appreciate you being <laughs> that massively because I understand it's not the easiest thing in the world to do. No, no. I'm just curious. Absolutely. So a good example of a dopamine of non-functional habit that I built for myself that I've tried to cut out very desperately is dessert after dinner and basically sugar. And I don't know, Greg, if you've ever tried to cut out sugar, but it's in everything. It's so hard. Yeah. You and Judith, my wife would just have a great time talking about that. This is her grand challenge in her life as well. But anyway, 
please continue. There's a really great TED talk too, and I'm sorry, I can't remember the name, but basically that sugar is not a treat is the title. And it effectively, it goes through the science and the physio science of how it is that sugar is not just in everything, but is a toxin for us. And it disrupts every good process in our body. Anyway, so I mean, I tried to, to cut that out. And I mean, it's so hard. And absolutely, you see that our society is built around this concept of dessert. It is a very tasty substance. There are all kinds of substitutes for it that are even more sugary that actually lead you to want more sugar, which is in fact not blocking that dopamine feedback loop that is dysfunctional. So I mean, there is a time for sure I've had to try to reconstruct it, visualize it differently, identify it. So say, I'm in this now. I know this is happening to me. I don't want it to happen anymore. Effectively, it's an addiction. How do I interrupt it? Sometimes it was through distraction effect, et cetera. And so there was a time that I have had it happen to me and I've tried to interrupt it and tried to block it. Still not totally successful. Like yesterday I was, Greg, but the night before that, I wasn't. The night before that, I had ice cream for dessert. So I'm telling you, it is still a work in progress. But there is an example of one of those sort of states that I wish that I had been more functional. And then on the contrary, much like yourself, I really like exercise. I exercise every day at the same time. Everyone knows. It's blocked off in my calendar. All of my colleagues know. My assistant knows. There's just, it's when I work out. It's what I've determined is my ideal time in the day. And now, like a dopamine, exactly like I described, like a functional habit, it is an addiction in the sense that, a functional one, mind you, but in the sense that if I don't have it, I don't sleep as well at night, if I don't exercise that day, rather, I don't sleep as well at night, I find my nutritional patterns are disrupted, my circadian rhythm is disrupted, I find my happiness is a little bit disruptive, my mind state is disruptive. So even my sense of, and this is what you were experiencing moving in and out of flow on your paddleboard this morning, is you know gratitude, right? You had moments of, wow, this is great, I feel so much gratitude for being here, which is ideal. And we know gratitude has such great ramifications for brain health and body health and brain body connection and all of that. And I would find disrupted, if I didn't exercise, it disrupted even my sense of gratitude, my sense of patience, my ability to concentrate, like you name it. So there's two examples that I think many of your listeners and yourself even might identify with that have been positive and negative using the same mechanism, using the same feedback loop basically having to say, listen, one's a functional habit and one's a dysfunctional habit. I really appreciate you actually being <laughs> transparent with that. Thank you. Wow. And I also have issues with ice cream. <laughs> yeah. not going to go away anytime soon, unfortunately, but I'll try to manage it the best that I can with two kids anyway. So another sort of thing that you mentioned that I want to get into, because it's a really interesting term that I actually haven't heard before, but I would love your take on it because I think it's really cool if we can achieve it is performative energy. What is that? How do we access it? Please explain because I thought that was a really neat term. I don't know if this is the academic definition per se, but I believe it to be the energies that help us perform and be our peak performing selves. So they are usually approach emotions. They are usually functional dopamine feedback loops. They are brain states and mindsets and psychological context or position that allow you to feel your best and from whence you're able to be your best self, perform your best, think your best, do your best, feel your best. And everyone's a little bit different. And so what I've noticed as an example is that my most performative energies, my most performative brain space 
isn't one of hyper anxiety. It isn't one of loud noise. I need sort of, I'm a little bit introverted that way. I need to be able to concentrate. I need time to be able to reflect, et cetera. Contrary that, I work with somebody as an example who absolutely loves the 11th hour pressure of having to get something done not necessarily even a procrastinator, but doesn't feel like he can perform his best work, that he is his best self in his most performative state until it's the 11th hour, the pressure is on, the stakes are high, the anxiety is running high. Probably there's lots of stuff happening around. There are other people who are also in a state of anxiety, of anxious performance of some kind. And so really thrives on that energy. I don't. What I'm acknowledging is that everyone will have a different performative brain space, mindset, and energies that help them. And so I think it's a largely personal thing, but effectively it's however, it's the energy you require to be your peak performing self. Interesting. So that's almost like the flow state, the ideal performance state that inverted you where low activation states you can't perform then as or you can't perform well then as your activation increases your energy levels increase your nervousness increases your performance can improve but if it goes too far off the other end into you know I'm scared I'm nervous I'm anxious then also your performance isn't great so finding that ideal point in the middle of that mm-hmm. inverted you I think it's the York Stobson law if I'm not mistaken that's what you're talking about and it's in different points there Yeah. And I think what happens is everyone sort of lives in somewhere in this band naturally, right? So where they wake up in the morning. And so I think to sort of further elaborate as an example, that colleague of mine, he needs that level of excitement, I think, to push him into that operational band at the top of that U-curve. Whereas I often feel like for me, that level of excitement and pressure and anxiety and rigmarole and buzz pushes me to your point, sort of down that slippery slope at the back end of that U shape. So maybe when he wakes up in the morning, he lives somewhere in a lower range of excitement, energy, enthusiasm, optimal performative energies. And maybe my natural state is one further up that curve. And so it's easier to push me off that curve than it is him, right? He needs that extra stimuli in order to get him in that optimal performance band. Yeah, interesting. You talked also about neuroplasticity and how the brain is neuroplastic. I've heard that so much. I'm really excited about it because it just means that any time in our lives, we can improve our brain. Anything that's happened to us previously, we can improve our brain. Can you explain neuroplasticity and what you've discovered recently in that area? Yeah. So one of the things I think that's probably one of the more scary findings, I think, in the last 10 years is not just, we always knew that the brain was neuroplastic. I think what we're figuring out is that, and new research all the time showing us just how neuroplastic you are. So just how quickly you'll lay down new neural pathways, new connections for things that matter to you, things that you're interested in. Technology has shown, especially with youngsters who are addicted to technology or who really like technology, video gaming is an example, video gamers they will very quickly neuroplastically reorient to new gaming worlds at unprecedented levels. And of course, those games are also designed to spike that, to allow them that neuroplastic alteration. We used to believe, as an example, that neuroplasticity went to zero, starting at puberty, effectively, 
you just continually decreased until you're deaf, at which point you likely had zero neuroplasticity left, almost like collagen in your skin. You were just no longer nimble or flexible cognitively. We know that now to be discredited and untrue. So you are in fact neuroplastic throughout your life. The truth is, is that neuroplasticity is the secret to all knowing and all learning and all knowledge because it is the laying down of new networks that is how the brain holds information, um, new permutations of networks, which actually is also very hopeful and encouraging because what it also means implicitly is that your ability to learn is infinite. So what you can know given time and opportunity, you can encode. Your brain has no limit to that at the theoretical level. Where the limit lies is in accessing those networks and is in accessing those memories. And really, knowledge is really just the memory of having learned something encoded into a network for which you already have some relevance because you won't develop necessarily an altogether new network. You'll take existing cognitive networks, existing schema, cognitive schemata, and reorient them toward new information. What I find very hopeful and helpful and also wildly scary is not just how fast we figured out you are neuroplast, so how quickly your brain can reorient, but that it is doing it all of the time, whether you know it or not, whether you like it or not. What that means is that you, and I sometimes say this on stage, it is one of the theses of one of my keynotes, is that whether you like it or not, whether you know it or not, your brain is constantly changing in response to the stimuli around you, which means that you are not just the food you eat. We're all very used to that adage. You are not just the company you keep. We are also used to that adage, but it's more and more true. We're finding out all the time that you very quickly, effectively become neurocognitively who the people around you are. You are the culmination of the five people you spend the most time with. You've probably heard that research. That's actually true. Mm -hmm. You're saying that's like, there's actually some really good science around that. That's fascinating. Well, and neurocognitively. So you're literally laying down neural networks that mimic theirs. So you neuroplastically become and you neuroplastically will develop the same insights, ideas, polarization of thought, perspectives as the people that you spend the most time with. And so that's scary. But the thing that scares me the most, and this is the thesis, as I say, of one of my keynotes, is that you are also the thoughts you think. And so while that has very potent ramification for the self-talk that we do, so you know the self-talk about you're worth it, you can do it, you can get through this you're awesome, or whatever we tell ourselves, or that other self-talk that you're not worthy, you're not good enough, you're not thin enough, you're not smart enough, these people are going to judge you, they're going to think you're an idiot, you're that complex that so many people have in their kind of mind's eye or in their running internal narrative. That means that those narratives are not benign. It means that they're more powerful than we ever thought them to be before. And I think that is, for me, the scariest ramification of some of this accelerated known knowables about neuroplasticness of your brain is the fact that, well, you can't always believe what you think becomes your reality and very literally becomes the neurons that fire together and therefore wire together. And so that scares me, I think, for both what is exogenously, extrinsically put into our brain in so many subconscious ways through marketing and through the use of Facebook and Instagram and all of these platforms that whether we like it or not signal to all of us on a continual basis that we don't have enough. We're not good enough. We're not worthy enough. We haven't reached our height yet. We haven't developed our optimum selves yet. And so I think that's very scary because that is exogenously being input into a subconscious that 
as it roots through and tries to find a narrative that feels right, will then will put forward some damaging insights for you, right? And I come at this from the perspective that your subconscious is, there's 200 billion bits of information a second or whatever that, I think it's million bits of information a second that your brain can take in, though you're only paying attention to some absolute infinitesimal fraction of that. And so your conscious brain is doing very little of what your subconscious brain is in fact absorbing. And then it's your subconscious brain that often is the one that is really manufacturing the self-talk and the internal cognitive narratives that your conscious brain ends up adopting, not the other way around. And so I think that for me is such a scary truth because what it means is that whether we like it or not, whether you believe it or not, a lot of the subconscious stuff that's filtering in that 200 million bits of information going into that subconscious brain every day is becoming your brain, is neuroplastically rewiring you. And that means that you can tell me, and I sometimes tell this to groups that say, oh yeah, I read the New York Times and I'm careful. Yeah, but do you really though? Or do you also sift through Facebook for an hour a day? And are you, you can tell me anything. You can even tell you anything. But what you really do with your brain is what your brain really becomes. And so we have to be very careful about what we ingest intellectually and from a visual and technological perspective. I often joke about, and you would appreciate this, Greg, there is a scary or violent scene in a film on the television in front of your child. You'll hide your children's eyes, but you wouldn't hide your own. And so we don't censor, I think, enough of kind of what's coming into our ether, what's coming into our environment, who is coming into our environment, and what we're allowing our subconscious to be adulterated by effectively. And I think that is something that is the scariest ramification for me. Yeah, I love that idea of you become the thoughts that you think. I didn't realize it happened so quickly or so extensively. That's pretty cool. I learned this profoundly at the Titan Summit a few years ago, which is an event that I speak at hopefully on an annual basis, because I really like being there, just being surrounded by incredible people completely changes your life. And it's really important to audit that. And even though you may be friends with people or they may be even family members, if they have a negative effect upon your life, it's essential that you decrease the amount of time that you spend with them because there's other opportunities. Life is short. We need to surround ourselves with people that make us better. And a way of doing that, which I've become sort of gotten back into, I did this a lot when I was a teenager and then got away from it and I'm back at it now is reading as much as I can, especially biographies of amazing people. I've read Elon Musk's biography. I read Walter Isaacson's biography of Leonardo da Vinci. I've got Alex Hutchinson's book Endure on my desk. I've got Impromptu by Judith Humphrey. Like I'm trying to surround myself with people via books and I love the idea also that you mentioned about being careful about Facebook or social media and consuming that intentionally, not compulsively. Yeah. Because if you're compulsively scrolling through Facebook, that's a problem. If you're intentionally engaging, commenting positively on other people's lives, encouraging and congratulating, that's a completely different physiologic and psychological response. I love that idea of you become the thoughts that you think and protecting that like crazy. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, that seems like a really good place to stop for this round. I'm sure that we should do a part two of this because I literally just scratched the surface, but I am sensitive to your time and I promised you that I would be done in two minutes. So I wanted to hit my timeline. How can people learn more about 
you and your work online, how can they connect with you? Yeah, thanks, Greg. It's drbryn.com, D-R-B-R-Y-N-N.com. Really simply, you'll find everything there, blog posts, all the social profiles, all the videos, everything that we're working on, everything that's happening in this world. And feel free to shoot me questions. Awesome. Dr. Bryn, thank you so much for taking the time. Thank you, Dr. Greg. Thanks. Great conversation. Thank you so much for listening. I really appreciate you joining me for this episode of the podcast. Your time is incredibly valuable and spending it with me is just mind blowing. I I thank you so much for doing that. It's great. If you want to support the show, if you enjoyed that segment and you want more, please subscribe to the podcast on iTunes and on Google Play. That makes a huge difference for us. And then also, if you can let me know what you think. All of my social media are at Dr. Greg Wells. And of course, if you can share this with anyone in your network, it would be greatly appreciated as well. All right, that's it for this week. Thanks for listening. And we'll speak to you again really, really soon.